Our first reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 to 15, and that's on page 581 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Listen now for God's word. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the businesses that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds. Yet, they cannot find what out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for me than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all shall stand in awe before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. Word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. Our second scripture text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. If you would like to read along, you can find this text printed on page 109 in the New Testament portion of the Pew Bible in front of you. Listen now for a word from God. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him this third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to go, uh, you, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grew old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would go and glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper And said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose... 
that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Loving and living God, just as you breathe your life-giving spirit into the first human to make Adam come alive and inhabit this earth, may you speak and breathe your spirit into these ancient texts that they might be for us a living word that we might find in them encouragement and challenge and hope for the living of these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the church calendar, we are currently in the season of Eastertide, a roughly five-week season when we remember and we explore the significance of Easter. Things like the empty tomb and the first witness of the women, and the Christian hope for resurrection. It's one of the longest seasons in the liturgical year, and it concludes in a couple of weeks with the celebration of Pentecost, the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples gathered together in Jerusalem. It seems then an appropriate uh, thing to do during this season of Eastertide to talk a little bit about one of my favorite post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, part of which I have just read in John 21. But before we turn our attention to that text, allow me just a little bit of biography. Now, I don't want anybody to hear what I'm about to say uh, as uh, coming from any sense of pride or self-righteousness, but... I was what I would like to call a youth group all-star throughout middle school and high school. I went to just about every Sunday morning and Wednesday night youth group and retreat and mission trip that was offered by my church. I was uber spiritual. I often think back on this life, uh, this season of my life, with a great fondness. I met some of my greatest friends. I was poured into by loving and encouraging mentors. And I discovered my sense of calling, uh, which has led to where I am today in this very moment. But if I'm honest, there are some parts of this season in my life that were, well, just a little bit cringy. I'll give you one example. When I was in high school, there was a store in the mall, and some of you will remember what a mall is. <laughs> there, there was a store in the mall that sold Christian music and Christian t-shirts and other forms of Christian paraphernalia. They even had a binder there where you could look up your favorite secular artist, and mine at the time was Tupac. And if you found your favorite secular artist, they would offer you an equivalent artist that was Christian. (laughs) Now, most of these Christian replacements were sort of like vegan bacon. You You can force it down, but it's nowhere close to the real thing. In addition to this wonderfully curated Christian art supply, This store also had a collection of what I would call piously ironic t-shirts. 
And I must have had a full week's worth to wear in sun, uh, throughout high school. Like I said, a little bit cringy. I had one sweatshirt, and to be honest, I can't remember if I bought it for myself or if one of my fellow youth group all-stars gave it to me. But this shirt had a saying, get out of hell free across it, and it was an homage to the Monopoly game, right, and the get-out-of-jail-free card, uh, equipped with the, the bearded man and the top hat. Now, I'll be honest, maybe it's not fair or wise to evaluate or take seriously any theology that can be printed across their shirt, or on a bumper sticker for that matter, but I do think that this t-shirt represents an inadequate understanding of Christianity, of salvation, and of the very gospel itself. It's just a little bit cringy, if you will. To put it plainly, it is a theology that is so obsessed with the afterlife, with getting in and staying out of hell, that it neglects one's real life, one's life on this earth. As I'll say sometimes in classrooms that I'm teaching at, it's, it's like a theology that says I'm saved and now I'm just waiting to get hit by a bus so that I can go to heaven. There's nothing else there. And this form of theology often encourages a significant break from the world. Worship is, is seen as a temporary escape from the God-forsakenness of the world and its nasty vices. And ethics is, is often about creating and usually powerfully defending exclusively Christian zones within that world. I've been thinking about this t-shirt and that version of Christianity it represents a lot lately. As, as many of you know, and as many of you are currently in the service today, there are about 23 members and friends of this church who will embark on our Germany study tour later this afternoon. Along with Tony, Katie, and myself, our focus for the trip is the Confessing Church Movement, a, a resistance movement led mostly by Protestant pastors during the rise of the Third Reich and the early years of World War II. These pastors were motivated to act to resist because they saw that the state church of Germany was capitulating to the demands of Hitler, and they were even supporting and articulating some of the basic beliefs behind the Nazi party. The Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer is perhaps and probably the best known member of the Confessing Church. Born in 1906 and killed in April of 1945 in a German concentration camp, Bonhoeffer's work as a pastor and a theologian matured in the shadow of the Third Reich. Some of you will know his most famous works like The Cost of Discipleship or Life Together. But in the last couple of decades, Bonhoeffer scholars have begun to focus more attention on his occasional correspondences with other pastors and theologians and academics and co-conspirators. And it's in these letters that we see and find some of his most important ideas especially from the time period when he was imprisoned as a prisoner of war, or as a, as a, uh, a dissident, a political dissident. Now, I, I first learned of and read Bonhoeffer in middle school 
What did I say before? Youth group all-star. My impression of Bonhoeffer then, and for until very recently, was that he was a very serious, a very somber person. He talked a lot about taking up one's cross and about the real-world costs of discipleship. But as I've prepared for this trip, I've come to appreciate a different or fuller side of Bonhoeffer. Thanks to the excellent biography by Charles Marsh, I've come to see that, that Bonhoeffer was a much fuller and, and richer person than my youthful impressions of him. He loved to travel. He loved uh, the liturgy and the mystery of the Catholic Church in Rome. He himself was an accompanied pianist, and he loved attending music throughout his life, even in the months leading up to his arrest and imprisonment. And we learned from some of his former theology students, he was also a pretty good ping-pong player. So there's that. Toward the end of his life, Bonhoeffer started writing about what has been called the this-worldliness of Christianity. Some of the clearest versions of this were written while he was in prison, with the possibility of his death becoming more and more likely with every passing month. But his imprisonment wasn't the, the cause of this new way of viewing the world and of the Christian's engagement with it. Rather, it was a sort of concentration or a focusing of ideas that he had throughout his life. And it's important for us to note that in the very moment when he was surrounded by profound suffering and when he was surrounded by the, the profound evils of the Nazi party, he articulated a theology not of escaping this world, but for engaging it more fully. In one of his letters, Bonhoeffer elaborates on what he means by the this-worldliness of Christianity or of Christian discipleship. He says, for example, that one learns to have faith only by living completely in this world. He says that living in the world demands that we attempt, that we abandon any attempt to make something of ourselves, whether that making is entirely positive or entirely negative. He offers something of a definition of this worldliness when he says that it is, quote, living unreservedly in one's duties, one's problems, one's successes, and one's failures. In short, this worldliness means living completely and fully and without reserve in this world. Faith is not an escape from the ordinary and sometimes ornery world. Rather, faith drives us to deeper, fuller engagement with this world. Whether this engagement means fulfilling our duties and obligations or navigating problems and frustrations, or experiencing success and joy, or even suffering loss and disappointment. This worldliness means a complete dedication of life, a full commitment to one's place in life and to the needs of the world. And it's that, that second part, the needs of the world, that I think distinguishes Bonhoeffer's this worldliness from an inappropriate focus on self-development that I would call a soft form of narcissism. 
Living faithfully means living responsibly. It means living with and for the sake of others. And this applies to us as individuals and to us as a community of faith. As Bonhoeffer says in another place, the church is the church only when it exists for others. The church, he says, must share in the secular problems of ordinary life. And it must do so not to dominate or to exploit, but to help and to serve. Bonhoeffer's concept of this worldliness has helped me think a little bit differently about Peter's recommissioning in John 21, what I have called Peter's predicament. Peter, the often self-appointed leader of the 12 disciples, has reached something of a low point at this point in the gospel narrative. He has witnessed the arrest of his teacher and his friend, And he has flatly denied that he even knows the man. And then after the resurrection, after receiving the news of Jesus' resurrection from the women, and even after encountering the risen Lord himself, John 21 opens with news that Peter is going fishing. Now, interpreters make a lot about this decision of Peter's. Was it, was it a return to his former life in a sort of backsliding way that we might think of? Or, or was, it, was it simply a, an attempt to escape from the, from the grief and the sorrow and the guilt and the shame of the last 36 hours? I think there's a, a variety of ways for us to think about it, but, but one I think is clear. One is we can see this return to fishing as a return to the ordinary, a return to that which is real. Peter is going back to the very duties and the station that he knew before he started following Jesus. And it is in that return, it is in that going back to the real, that he finds Jesus. He finds Jesus in the real world in a bit of a significant way. While he has spent the night fishing, Afterwards, a man appears on the banks of the sea, and, and this man calls to Peter and his friends on the boat, and he says, hey, if you just cast your net over there, you're going to catch some fish. And so Peter, his disciples, they do just that. They cast the net, and they pull in an amazing haul of fish. It's a, mirac- it, it's a miracle for sure, but we must not miss the fact that these are real, smelly, squiggly fish. This is the real world. It's at this moment that Peter recognized that that stranger on the seashore is actually Jesus. And as Peter often does, he impulsively jumps in the water and swims to Jesus. And I think the next part of the story is also a return to the ordinary, to the real. Peter finds that Jesus has prepared breakfast for his friends. He finds bread and fish. He finds a warm fire, and he sits around this warm fire. And Jesus says to Peter, come and have breakfast. He doesn't say, come, let's talk about your heavenly mansion and all of the cool cars you're going to have in heaven. He doesn't say, come, let me tell you a detailed timeline for when I'm going to return in my second coming. He doesn't even say, hey, come, let me explain to you the mysteries of the Trinity or the mysteries of why God created a platypus. 
No, he says, come, have breakfast. Come, be nourished. Come, be in my presence and in the presence of your friends. Come, return to that which is real. And then we move into this back and forth between Jesus and Peter, which I read earlier. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter responds three times, yes, I love you. You know that I love you. And then Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep or tend my lambs. Perhaps in another setting, we can explore the nuances of the different Greek constructions and Greek words for love and sheep and all of that. But that's not this sermon. Instead, I want to focus on just the surface level of this engagement. It's a pretty clear command. The way that Peter can show that he loves Jesus is by tending to the people under his care. It's not by fleeing from the world, but engaging the world. Jesus' command doesn't lead to disengagement, but deeper engagement with the world. And there's something earthly and ordinary about this whole conversation. Peter is bound to reality and to real people. He is bound to the work of ministry, to a life of existence for the sake of others. Peter is called to what Bonhoeffer would call this worldly discipleship. My thinking on on Bonhoeffer and on John 21 all came together this past Tuesday night when we were gathered in Fifield Hall for our annual Statement of Faith Night. This is one of the most meaningful and important nights in the life of the church. Each of our incoming ministry leaders or elders shares a bit of their faith journey with the rest of the people in the room, And they all talk about the variety of ways that they've seen God at work in their lives. Each of these faith stories is, of course, unique, but there are some common threads. People talked about the important role of their family, whether their family of origin or their family by choice, in their own development of faith. Many talked about the messiness of life, broken relationships, job changes, and severe and profound disappointments, and yet they affirm that it's in the very messiness of life that they experienced and found the faithfulness of God. A few celebrated powerful, extraordinary demonstrations of God's care, but many others pointed to what I would call the ordinary miracles of the faith loving and caring communities of faith, experiences and relationships that were ordinary but transformative. And through them all, through all of these stories, I heard echoes of Bonhoeffer's words. These leaders were living their lives without reserve. They were engaging their own duties and their own problems, their own success and their own failures throughout those particular stations of life. They were following Christ in the world, and they were pursuing this worldly discipleship. So what about you? And what about me? Does God's raising Jesus from the dead encourage our flight from the world? Does it lead us to create Christian zones that have been sealed off either imaginatively or literally from the rest of the world? Or does our faith in Jesus' resurrection lead us to a deep and profound and joyful 
and yes, at times, even sorrowful engagement with the world. I hope and pray that it's the latter. So may the resurrection of Jesus call us not to a life of vainly cultivating the self, but of a life living with and for the sake of others. May the resurrection summon us into the world to follow and find Christ there in the real and in the ordinary. And may we, like Peter, heed God's call to love and lead in this world with all its beauty and messiness. Amen.